the Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here this morning. We trust that you are here with us in this place. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In the aftermath of the Tower of Babel, after the Lord has dispersed the descendants of Noah across the face of the earth, Genesis comes back and refocuses. It returns from the grand scope of all the world's inhabitants back to God's chosen family. Chapter 11 of Genesis ends with a genealogy of Shem's descendants, Shem being one of Noah's sons. And we read, in the seventh generation after Shem, a man named Terah fathers three sons, Haran, Nahor, and Abram. And then in Genesis 11.29, we have the introduction of Terah's sons' wives. Here's what it says. And Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. And then in verse 30, we're given a specific detail about Abram's wife. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now, I want to say two quick things about this seeming aside before we get into God's grace and provision for Abraham and Sarah later in their lives. First of all, it's no coincidence that we are told immediately upon Sarah's introduction into the narrative that she's barren. Moses, as he's putting together these stories, knows where we're headed. He knows about Ishmael and Isaac. He knows that God is going to bring a great family out of Abram and Sarai. This is foreshadowing. But it's not just foreshadowing. Moses knows about the creation that we read last week, that when earth was a formless void, God moved over the face of the deep and spoke creation into existence with a word, something coming from nothing. But Moses doesn't know anything about what's coming after his own life is over. He doesn't know anything about Ezekiel, for instance, and his valley of dry bones, or anything about the empty tomb on Easter morning. Moses is, though, calling attention to the way in which God works and the way in which God will always work, bringing life out of death. The other thing I want to draw your attention to here is where this piece of information comes. It comes immediately after a long genealogy. Again, this is not accidental. Moses knows where the story is going. But as a narrative device, if you were to read Genesis, it really packs a punch. Eight generations of so-and-so begat so-and-so and lived for so many years. Begat, begat, begat for paragraphs. And then, bam, Abraham marries Sarah. And she's barren. 
end of the line, right? Well, of course, not so fast. Remember, last week we talked about those most blessed two words in Scripture, but God, and hold that thought. We're going to get back to but God here in just a second. But first, Genesis 18, that's where we are today. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He appears to Abraham in the form of three men visiting, whom Abraham welcomes generously. And one of the men tells him that upon his next visit, Sarah will have a son. And Sarah, listening at the tent flap, laughs. After all, she's barren. She knows it. And then all the pretense of three men visiting is dropped. And the story turns to a conversation directly between God and Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, indeed, shall I bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the time set, I will return to you in due season and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, oh yes, you did laugh. Now, we all know what happens. God keeps his promise. We just read it at the end. The Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age Abraham gave the name Isaac to this son. And then Sarah revels in what God has done for her. God has brought laughter for me, she says. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would ever have said to Abram that Sarah would nurse children? She's saying, who could have believed this thing that God has done? Yet, she says, I have borne him a son. In his old age, this is our God at work, bringing something out of nothing, life out of death, a family out of a barren womb. And it's not like Abraham and Sarah are showing any particular worthiness of such faithfulness, is it? Remember, we're in Genesis 18 now. This is three chapters after Genesis 15, in which God has already promised Abraham that his descendants are going to inherit the land from the river in Egypt to the great river Euphrates, a promise that he has sealed in a powerful one-sided ceremony during which he, in the form of a smoking fire pot, passes between slaughtered animals, proving the lengths to which he will go to keep his promise. This already happened a long time ago. In fact, God has been promising Abraham offspring ever since he called him in the first place in Genesis 12. If you read Genesis 12 and following, pretty much every interaction that Abraham has with God involves God reconfirming his promise that Abraham will have a family, that he will be a father to a great nation. And yet... Despite all these years of promises, Sarah laughs. 
But as embarrassing as that might be, Sarah's laughter is not the lowest ebb her faith has seen, is it? It was Sarah who, figuring that the Lord couldn't keep his promise, gave her servant Hagar to Abraham as a wife so that a child could be born and a family created outside of God's promise. It was Sarah who tried to accomplish for her own family, for herself, what God had already promised to provide. And isn't this so often the human enterprise? Ever since sin entered in Eden, we have been suspicious of God's ability to keep his promises. So we seek to accomplish for ourselves what God has already promised to provide us. This is what self-justification means. God has promised that on account of and in Christ, we are made right with him. And yet, we humans, both within the church and without, struggle on our own to reach a place where we can lay our heads down at night believing that everything is okay. We are striving to get something that only God can give. And for us Christians, we're striving to get something that we in fact already have. Abraham and Sarah already had God's promise. And God's promise is solid as a rock. I have a friend who tells a story about tearing his house apart looking for a set of keys that he eventually realized were in his pocket the whole time. He was driving himself crazy looking for something he already had. But our God is a promise keeper. And the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that he is a promise keeper in the face of our promise breaking. I promised you a few minutes ago that we'd get back to those blessed two words, but God. They don't appear in our reading from Genesis today, but their inverse does appear. Did you catch it in in the story? The Lord said to Abraham, why does Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for I was afraid. But Sarah denied. In the two verses we talked about last week, Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 5, we read, but God. And something very different comes after, but God, than what just came after, but Sarah. But Sarah denied, but God, in Ephesians 2, made us alive. But God, in Romans 5, shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God does these things, makes us alive, and shows us his love in Christ while we are sinners, while we are denying like Sarah. And of course, most famously, like Peter. 
I did not laugh, says Sarah. I am not one of Jesus' friends, shouts Peter. Like Peter and Sarah, we are like Ezekiel's dry bones, dead, with nothing to commend ourselves. And yet, as the biblical story attests again and again, this is precisely where our God works. Bringing something out of nothing. Life out of death. A great family out of a barren womb. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, St. Paul makes this explicit. Consider your calling, he says. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God, here we have it again, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God chooses the things that are not. That's where God works. This means he is at work in you. Do you doubt? Are you afraid? Have you broken promises? Do you feel barren? That's why Jesus came. Jesus and his empty tomb are God's faithfulness in the face of your faithlessness. They are his promise kept in the face of your promise broken. In Christ, God gives you the faithfulness you lack. He creates inspires and sustains in us the lives of which we are on our own incapable. He makes of us a new version of a great nation that is a faithful church. He does this, and he does it all from nothing. Life from death, a great family from an empty womb, a righteous child from a sinner. This is our announcement to the world. We were dead, but God. Now, because of God's faithfulness, God's promise keeping revealed in Jesus Christ, we were dead. But now we are alive. Amen.